Hello and welcome to A Living Loss, the art of losing and finding yourself. I'm your host, psychotherapist and author, Julia Samuel. Sometimes change arrives abruptly in our lives and we can completely lose our sense of identity and place in the world. A breakup, losing your job, a global pandemic, or a health diagnosis are all changes that make us grieve for our former existence. I call these living losses. In each episode, I will call on my 30 years of experience as a grief psychotherapist to explore what my guests have learned from the first loss they can remember to the one that changed everything. I couldn't be more thrilled to have today's guest joining me to share some of her experiences with living loss. Elizabeth Day is an author, journalist and broadcaster and the host of one of the most beloved podcasts out there, How to Fail. Since winning the British Press Awards Young Journalist of the Year in 2004, she's gone on to write six incredible books. Having been a guest on her podcast, I know personally that Elizabeth is one of the greatest interviewers I've ever had the pleasure to work with. She brings such natural warmth and empathy to every podcast she records. As a growing voice in the public conversation around childlessness and child loss, I was particularly hopeful that we would be able to talk about that and touched by her honesty in the conversation that we had. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth. lovely that you're here and thank you so much for joining me. It feels such a, a privilege and a tiny bit scary but also a joy and I've, I spent quite a lot of yesterday reading you, listening to you, loving philosophy, how to fail. I've got little green things. Oh look, oh that's the <laughs> ultimate compliment, thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, and it was such a pleasure and You've done amazing things in your life, you know, so much for, for, I mean, bursting onto the stage from when you left university. It was like you did such success so early. And so, you know, when I was introducing you, I was thinking, you know, I really can't be more thrilled that you're here um, and that you are an author, a journalist, a broadcaster and the host of one of the most beloved podcasts out there, How to Fail. And I was wondering, and certainly me being on your podcast is one of the sort of great accolades of my life and a great pleasure last year. Really, it was a real highlight for me. But when you hear those labels, do they feel true or do they feel like they're like somebody outside of you, a different Elizabeth Day who's out there kind of waving? I mean, if this is the first question, this is going to be an amazing experience. <laughs> That's such a good question. And I just want to say thank you for honouring me by asking me to be on this. And thank you for having come on How to Fail. Given that you've been on Desert Island Discs, for you to say that that's one of the accolades of your life makes me feel really happy. Um, in answer to your question, no, it doesn't really feel like me. And it's because, although I'm aware that I've had professional success and I'm extremely lucky and I've worked hard for that. It's that thing of kind of 
I know because I've lived my life, all of those knotty bits in between, all of the lack of self-worth and the feelings of anxiety and uncertainty that I felt when I was going through all of that. And alongside that, all the personal stuff that was going on in my life, which doesn't get repeated in a professional biography of kind of potted achievements where quite often my personal life felt that it was not going according to plan and so for a very long time in my life there was a strange duality where what I was projecting might have been perceived as success but I didn't feel like that and so I still remember those feelings And although I feel successful now because I've changed the metric of what success means to me, I still remember what it felt like during all of those years when I was trying so fervently to establish myself, to achieve something and to be somewhere. And it was really exhausting and draining a lot of the time. And, you know, some of the time it was great as well. But that's why I feel a slight disconnect with it really interesting and I was thinking that it feels like what you're saying that while you're having this sort of external success and achievement while the personal stuff was going on you couldn't kind of embrace it or feel like it was entirely yours it didn't feel authentic but from the moment you paradoxically owned your sense of failure by doing the podcast which came from as, as I understand you, the lowest point in your life, that's what paradoxically turned your life around, that when you could embrace the aspect of yourself you find most kind of difficult and shameful was when you began to kind of heal. Exactly that. And it's why I so admire, respect and love your work, because it is about that. The antidote to shame... And the antidote to not trusting yourself is to be open about those experiences where you feel things have gone wrong or things that you might otherwise have repressed because you were trying to present this perfect image of yourself. And how to fail absolutely came from the lowest point in my life. It was, well, it was actually October 2017 and a long-term relationship ended completely out of the blue for me. And it was really devastating. The shock of it. Yeah, the shock of it. It was awful, partly because it was the first relationship I got into post my divorce, post a lot of fertility issues. And I felt that I had made different choices with this particular relationship. I've got, I kind of got it now. Exactly. <laughs> I've learned my lessons. Yes. Even though deep down, Julia, I sort of knew I hadn't. I sort of knew I'd learned some of them, but I was still kind of skimming on the surface a bit. And it took that relationship ending to remove all of that emotional scaffolding. And it was three weeks before my 39th birthday. And I just felt in such a dark place. I was like, well, I'm single again. I don't have children. It's going to take me ages to build the life that I think I want for myself. And what do I do now? And it it took me a few months to sort of come to terms with that. But it was from that place of vulnerability that I started to realise that every time something had gone wrong in my life or something had failed or a relationship had come to an end, I had also survived it. And that gave me an enormous amount of strength. And in the aftermath of that breakup, I started listening to podcasts because I couldn't listen to music because I found it too 
just emotionally heartbreaking. And one of the podcasts I listened to was your very good friend, Esther Perel. And um, it just made me realize that you could have these vulnerable conversations in this kind of sphere. And that's what I got really interested in. I got really interested in flipping the fetishization of success that we get, that I had been part of as a Sunday newspaper journalist, you know, interviewing successful film stars about their successful films. And, and they're in their gorgeous homes with their kind of shiny skin and beautiful outfits and nails and all the rest of Exactly. It. And I always felt that they were under such pressure as well to kind of perpetuate that. And I'm interested in the moments that are real. And so I wanted to flip it and, and ask people what they'd learned from failure. And you're right that when I started doing that, it enabled me to be so much more honest about myself and the great one of the greatest gifts of my life is that completely unwittingly i realized that by doing that i was connecting with a much bigger audience than i ever had before yeah. and now i feel i have this really beautiful community and tribe of people who understand me and accept me for who i really am and that they help you accept yourself but in some way giving them what they need about honesty and openness about the underbelly of life which is often the bit that we most want to hide and use too much energy hiding but by kind of bringing it out into the open you then felt met yourself and known and they've so there's a kind of reciprocal like you what you needed most you were giving to them and they needed it most so it's a, a wonderful kind of energy um which enables you all to grow because there's this you know in therapy I don't really like the sort of happiness, positive um, attitude thing. But something I do believe in is post-traumatic growth. Yeah. The, the idea that however devastating the loss that you've experienced. And with you, a new loss always brings back a previous loss. So when you ended that relationship two years after the divorce, it brought back the loss of the divorce. It brought back the previous losses. So you're... It's accumulated loss. It's not just one single discrete event, is it? It's like everything comes back at once. And I think often people think, God, I thought I dealt with that last thing. But it it isn't that they haven't dealt with it. It's just that it's always ignited by the new experience that goes to the same place. That's such a profound point. And I also feel similarly, I know we'll get onto this, but about miscarriages The last miscarriage I had was during the first national lockdown and it was a devastating experience but because it happened in lockdown I had to sit with it and I truly believe that I've processed that one in a way that I hadn't the previous ones because I didn't have all my usual distraction techniques and you're so right that I think I it took a relationship that was less important than my marriage to make me realize I was also grieving the end of my marriage yeah and then from it which is it was a where way round not getting to is that a post-traumatic growth never diminishes the level of the loss but what people kind of recognize is through that experience their perception of themselves what matters in the world what they value in the world and their engagement with the world and how they can survive great difficulty shifts and changes. 
and that they experience as growth. And it feels like your mm. moment of doing the podcast was a kind of blooming of that post-traumatic growth that you would never have had the language and that you dared. Like yeah. you dared not be perfect. You dared to take a risk. You dared say, fuck it. I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> Whereas everything else is like, I've got to get my words right. And I've got to, you know, getting a double first from Cambridge. I've got to succeed. But somehow, like, okay, mm. I give up. Yeah. So there are so many things that are sort of just popping off in my head, like little minor truth bombs as you're speaking. One is the idea of this like growth organism, that idea that, that connected we become like some sourdough mother. Like it's just, we just keep expanding, expanding. And I get that when I do, in pre-pandemic times, I did a number of How to Fail live shows. And that's just such, it's such an incredible experience. And hugely took me by surprise that always the most moving bit is the Q&A where I was used in my former life as an author of novels or a journalist to be asked questions about my career or how do you get published and suddenly with How to Fail the questions were how do you deal when your husband's cheating on you like how do you recover from losing a loved one and all these like true questions that were so extraordinary to share in that way and I think that thing about having to get all my words right is so true and maybe that's something that podcasting has given me because you can be more informal and I realized when I wrote the book how to fail I was really writing as myself which I'd not really done before (laughs) it's a lovely voice you have in how to fail thank you it's a very true voice well I, I think it's a voice that's like I you're so right that I'd always sort of tried so hard to write better than I felt to be I was. a good writer. Exactly. Yeah. To be serious and good. And actually, House Fail was just like, it just came, and philosophy just came from me. And to find people connecting with that has been a really lovely thing. My best friend, Emma, said this incredible thing. She came to the House to Fail live show at the South Bank. And she said, when I came off stage, the you that I saw on stage is the you that I'm best friends with, is the you that I see in your relationship and is the you that I see in your books. And it was the first time she'd properly been able to say that. And it was the first time that I felt fully integrated. That's an amazing thing. So you, it was not performative at all. It was you inside, outside, relationally, being your most you self and therefore being your best self. But listen, we're doing okay. a podcast Sorry. about living losses. <laughs> Which we've covered to some extent already. But what I'd love to know was, do you have a first loss? So a living loss in in my framing is that it's an experience um, of loss, which is experienced like grief, that you have all the emotions of grief, but it isn't recognised as a loss in the same way. So it's often um, under-acknowledged. And it can be a divorce, it can be moving house, losing a job, um, breaking up in a friendship, many things. Um, can you remember, if you put your memory back as far back as you can go, what your first loss is? I've loved the concept and I've been thinking about this so much. And I think that my first loss is not one that I perceived as a loss at the time, but it's one that's had a huge knock-on effect and has caused a lot of things that I'm sad about and I do feel that I've lost along the way so my first living loss 
is that at the age of four, my family moved to Northern Ireland, which meant leaving behind the life that I knew. We were living in Epsom. I had been born in Epsom. We had this house that obviously I was familiar with and my beloved grandparents who lived in Putney, who I saw all the time. And we uprooted ourselves and we ended up just outside Derry in 1982 at a time when essentially it was civil war where the IRA were blowing things up. There were military checkpoints. The British army was there as an occupying force and it was an incredibly challenging environment for ev- for anyone to live in, let alone a weird English family <laughs> who weren't connected with the military. My dad's a surgeon. He got a job out there. Um, my grandmother is originally from there. So there was a slight family connection. But I think the reason I've chosen it is because although I didn't, I can't remember the feeling of missing my grandparents, although I know that I did. I can't remember the feeling of sort of missing my former home or my friends but I do remember feeling a great deal of dislocation and I think that that's had a knock-on effect for the rest of my life and so one of the key memories from this era that I remember is of my teddy bear Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thomas being put in the washing machine by my mother because he needed to be washed and I Mm -hmm. found that so upsetting And I remember sitting by the washing machine, watching him go round and round and round in tears, just worried about his safety, longing for him to come out. (laughs) And, And that's what I remember. And I think it's because he represented a kind of security and something from that former life. And he did come out of the washing machine and he was fine. A bit bedraggled, but fine and then cleaner. But in some ways, you were seeing yourself as him in a spin cycle life threatened in a machine totally alien friendless you know alone and you know as you describe it from a four-year-old where you had a real sense of belonging and connection and familiarity and I think houses homes have so much containment in our psychological selves you know they contain so much and the smell like you probably miss the smell of Thomas because he was so cozy you know the smell is our first sense when we're born and when we die it's the one that la- that is the sort of surviving sense if you know what I mean because it's our survival instinct i guess um but it feels like you were literally thrown into such an alien place and that it was never said to you darling this is tricky you know, this is, we you know, we're all finding, it's, it, from what you're saying, it's like, la, 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 we're going to keep going. And so not voicing it is yeah. so, in, increases the alienation so much more. I mean, that's so interesting about seeing myself as my teddy bear. I totally, that's, I'd never thought of that before. And it's probably true. I mean, to be fair to my parents, it's not that I ever felt they didn't do anything wrong it's not that I I didn't feel insecure because of them it was a society where nothing I felt nothing real was actually spoken about so so no one really talked about what was going on almost as if they by not talking about it there would be a state of denial and we wouldn't have to worry about it (laughs) 
But that was from their parents, you know, mm. from the First and Second World War. But as a survival mechanism, which I think was their only option, all of those generations, including your parents and my parents, was we have to, what we don't talk about isn't going to hurt us. Yes. And that we have to shut down and keep going, literally like the mug, keep calm and carry on, because there wasn't the safety to sit back, cry, feel connected, express how you feel, because there was a war. And so it was true in Belfast and it was true for their parents. And, you know, I think it's the transgenerational trauma of that. I think we're only really beginning to be aware of now and that young people and you are a big voice for that, finding ways of expressing how we feel in a way that they didn't have the opportunity. It's so interesting that I'm a huge, I've got a huge fascination for epigenetics and how we can inherit trauma and how it can actually change our DNA. And so a First World War soldier who had shrapnel in his shoulder, his grandchild might have a weird unexplained shoulder pain. I find that completely mind-blowing. And I, and I think you're so right, especially with regards to children. There was that sense of we need to protect our children by not telling them what the real world is. And I have an enormous amount of sympathy and understanding for that because you can't tell your children everything and it's sort of difficult to know where the parameters lie. But I think I was... I was quite an odd child. <laughs> I mean, that's my perception. Well, you were sensitive and clever, so you okay. picked up a Thank lot you. of stuff, but you didn't have the story to make sense of it. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think that's it. And I read an awful lot. I had an inordinate love of books from a very young age. And I realised relatively recently that some of the children's books that I were most drawn to were about the Second World War. And I made the connection and I was like, oh, that's because I was living against a backdrop of conflict. And so I could relate to When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Kerr, which I think is such a great book. Wonderful book. Oh, yeah. so good. I mean, in, in a minor way, I could relate to it. Obviously, I didn't have any of the shattering experiences that she did. But that sense of your life being upturned by things beyond your control, I could connect to. And I I was thinking, as you were talking about your dad, as a surgeon in Belfast, dealing with all the um, patients who's had their legs blown off or shrapnel wounds, he must have had PTSD. He just must have done. Well, I would love you to talk to him about it, if that could ever happen. I, he's an amazing man, my father, in so many respects. And he never talked about it, which again, is just so... um, ironic given that we're talking about people not talking about war and that's the thing that was said when people came home from the front but he he did see some horrendous things and he was one of the first on the scene just after the Oma bombing um he he later did lots of work for Médecins Sans Frontières and ended up in war zones in Sierra Leone the Baltic States Iraq um and then subsequent to that actually joined the RAF as a surgeon so my parents ended up being posted to Cyprus when I was in my 20s um so I think I don't I've never seen any evidence of PTSD in him (laughs) um but I imagine he has had to find a way to deal and process those traumatic experiences and he has definitely shielded his family from that he's never spoken to me about it I mean PTSD, one of the 
I mean, we're not going to diagnose your dad now, and I hope he doesn't have it. Yeah. But one of the difficulties of it, actually, which also connects to you as a child, is that it isn't voiced, that people often who have PTSD don't find the words. It just the memories stay alive and vivid in the traumatic memory bit of the brain, the amygdala, that can get ignited. But actually, the whole point of when you work with PTSD is finding the narrative, finding the words. And that's similar, I was thinking, for you as a four-year-old. You know, what we talk now about children is that children, of course, they don't need promiscuous honesty. They shouldn't know every detail. But we can never protect children from the truth because what children don't know, they make up. And what they make up is much more frightening, which I think is what happened to you. Well, actually, it wasn't more frightening because it's pretty threatening. Um, Mm. But that they trust you and know what's going on. And when they don't, it's kind of threatening. And I have one more thought as you're talking, which is if there's a line that I would take from you from when you were four to you now, it would be that line of finding truth, like wanting to cut through the front and wanting to get to the heart of something. Not only because you want connection, which you do, and because you're clever and you have a lot of curiosity, but there's something about your ferocious... um, I don't know if it's a hunger, but you want the bloody truth. (laughs) Oh, my God, you're so good at this. I can't even... Yeah, I mean, I knew I'd find this emotional, but already to be welling up is ridiculous. But I think you're so right. And I have... It's like a yearning for truth. like a longing. And... I find it really uncomfortable when I'm around people who aren't telling the truth or who aren't living the truth of who they are. I find it very uncomfortable and, I, and I've and i often found myself in those situations and there's something about dishonesty, a kind of emotional dishonesty and also associated to that an injustice. I, I feel injustice extremely keenly and I don't mean I don't mean to make myself sound like Nelson Mandela. It's not like I'm not talking about global injustice, although obviously I feel like that's a bad thing. But I feel when someone I'm with you, yeah, <laughs> boo to that. Um, but I feel when someone perceives me or gives me feedback that is based on an incorrect assumption or a misreading of the facts, that has the power to undo me totally because I just feel so. Um, got at and like it's not fair and I need to defend myself and that's a tricky spot to be in when my public profile has got bigger over the last few years and got bigger actually because I've been open about things so so I'm in a place where I've been most open and I'm also attracting most criticism and most amazing response as well but I've had to really work on that yeah I've had to work on that Because in some ways, and you um, say it in Philosophy, which is a fantastic book, the most personal is the most universal. So in some ways, why people connect to you is your honesty and that it's a universal um, connector because it's so integral to all of us. 
But in expanding that, it gives people who have opinions or, you know, want to kind of voice their own um, prejudices or whatever it is. So you're a, tar- you're a much bigger target, which is, is difficult. Yeah, and actually part of my strategy for dealing with that is to understand that connection is overwhelmingly positive. If someone chooses to connect by being triggered and wanting to criticize something then that's still a connection it is. <laughs> and that's actually still important to me that I've that that at some level I've made someone think or feel something yeah it's true like this like there's no such thing as bad press I'm not sure that that's true but yeah. in a way any reaction is better than no reaction and actually when people feel numb they feel worse than anything that people would prefer to feel bad than nothing yes and so in some ways you're saying i'd rather than having no reaction you'd rather have some reaction it also helps me to think i wonder what i've triggered for this person that they've had this negative response because that enables me to feel compassion which i'm sure they'd hate (laughs) But, but it enables me to think oh poor them i feel sorry for them because this is coming from that kind of place and that's so helpful because it really sort of releases all of the anger or defensiveness that I would feel otherwise. And that just takes a lot of energy. So There is a real truth, and I think we're kind of badly designed, that hurt people hurt people. So that when we're really hurting, we are by no means our best selves. We become exactly the person that we don't want to be we're jealous we're resentful we're angry we're hurt we lash out at the people we love most because when we're hurt you know pain is the agent of change and we need to find a way of expressing the pain but it it means that we can spread our our lead as it were in so many places that do other people harm Mm -hmm. and it's such a bad design whereas when people are really happy and kind of in their, in their kind of loving, connecting place, they draw all the love <laughs> that they don't really need because they're already in a good place. Whereas when people need it most, it's hardest to get it in some ways. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's... <laughs> Can I take notes? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad design though. I've always thought that's a bad design. But you use a lot of your feelings, I think, to fight... There's a there's a, a lovely kind of sweetness combined with ferocity with your ability to articulate where you call stuff out. So you call stuff out for women, for patriarchy, for miscarriage, for attitudes. And I mean, I guess that's risky and you can receive people's ire. But that must be part of your truth finding, mustn't it? That, and like rage, I mean, I mm. think anger has people are very, I mean, I'm very bad at receiving anger. I, I'm not good at all. But if we want to change things, like pain is the agent of change, we have to have the energy. And anger, in a way, is the biggest energy for change. Is If you can find it that people can receive it, Often if you overdo it, then they can't hear you. But if you can find a level, which I think you do, with the sweetness and the kind of capacity to articulate, then people can hear what you're saying. And I think people really do. Thank you. That's an amazing thing to hear. And I think 
anger is something that I've only become comfortable with relatively recently. And for me, because like you, I'm extremely conflict avoidant. I I find it very unsettling. The idea of going on question time brings me out in a cold sweat and being the focus of people's anger for your opinion. I can't stand that idea. And, And also because I repressed my own anger for so long in my failed attempt to be quote unquote perfect. And anger for me is a lot like sadness in in that both can be used as masking emotions for each other for me, but also because I believe that there's a great deal to be said for letting the initial flurry of it pass. So I'm capable of feeling enraged and extremely sad and sobbing and feeling those feelings for a a shortish period of time it's generally transient that kind of height of that emotion sort of firestorm in your being yes it's like a volcano and then the lava cools and by the lava cooling it changes the landscape nice and that's from it's from that place that I write or that I share that the immediate stuff has passed for me I've processed it to an extent that I can write from a place that feels so untangled and so clear. right clear exactly like a surgeon like your dad <laughs> exactly and when i get to that point i just know that what i'm writing is the truth exactly as you say and you and i first made contact because you were coming on the podcast already but you sent me a really beautiful message on instagram because of a piece i'd written about what not to say to women when they're having a miscarriage or they've had a miscarriage and that place came from exactly the location that I've described it was like no I know this to be true and I can focus my anger and my sadness in that way and therefore it doesn't come across as being defensive or prickly and so it's true to me and the sweetness you describe um that's such a compliment I've never thought of myself as sweet. But yes, I think that's why it comes from there. But is it not in a sugary way, in a no. kind of really heart warm way is what I Thanks. mean. <laughs> yes, I think, yes, basically everything you're saying is true. <laughs> I like the idea of you being a surgeon with words like your dad is with his scalpel. So if we're thinking of living losses, I mean, you've talked about a lot of losses already. When you look back now as a 42-year-old, what do you think is the sort of life-defining living loss that you've experienced? Well, it will come as no surprise to say that it's miscarriage and fertility and therefore the living loss that I have is not being a mother. And that has been a defining part of my life for negative but mostly for positive in a way because I've I'm a big believer in transmuting negative into positive anyway and learning from failure and post-traumatic growth and everything we've been discussing it's made me realize how strong I am it's brought me into contact with extraordinary women who have similar experiences it's given me a, a platform to talk about what we go through and I know that that's helped a lot of people and so I'm very grateful for all of that. But I 
absolutely have a sense of grief which I for many years found very difficult because it felt as though I didn't have a right to grieve something that never was so there was no focus for it and it was quite difficult to explain and that's the my big living loss that you're grieving the future you had every right to expect that you've imagined and pictured yes but it's invisible yeah and also with my so I've now had three three miscarriages and two rounds of IVF that were unsuccessful um I'm so sorry I just need to say that I mean that is a lot of loss it's a lot of loss and as a as a sort of consequence but not it wasn't the entire story but my first marriage broke down and I got divorced and that came off the back of one year where I'd experienced a lot of that and I think my looking back probably part of my protection mechanism was that I actually didn't allow myself when I was pregnant that first time to imagine a future I felt that it was sort of um I think I was really unhappy already Mm. so I'd had these two rounds of IVF and at the end of and they were unsuccessful and I was sort of coming to terms with that and then at the end of that year I got pregnant naturally and I had a miscarriage and your hormones were kind of all over going bonkers yeah I mean technically by the end of 2015 I'd been pregnant three times so it was it was and I now realized I was mildly depressed and numb. I don't think I'd ever realized that numbness could be a sign of depression. Yeah. Um, and so in that numbness, I'm not sure whether I ever allowed myself to believe in a future. And then when I lost that baby, I even have trouble now saying baby. Yeah. But when I lost that, I sort of felt like, well, yeah, that's just what you deserve which is such a a, a horrible thing to say to myself but it was almost like a confirmation it was like okay yeah that's that makes sense that tracks that made more sense to me and I didn't allow myself ouch ouch I didn't yeah ouch I mean there's a whole pile of stuff I could go into there which I can't because it involves other people but it was an incredibly lonely time and my feeling was I was making too much fuss and I remember I had a missed miscarriage and so I went in and I had this scan um, a couple of days before my three-month scan and they said I'm so sorry but the heartbeat stopped and I was fully intending to go and do an event that night you're joking no and my mother my lovely mother was like, don't, you, you can't Think do that. About it. No. Yeah, you just, you just can't do that. <laughs> and, uh, but I needed people to tell me that. And I still, I was still like, no, I can do it because I can do everything. And if I can't have this, then I can carry on having a career. And it was just an exhausting, debilitating time. But there's also something, um, I mean, I can really feel the stab of your losses and, how painful that is and how, what courage it takes to talk about, about it and the honesty that you do. And also talking about them gives voice to people who have been silent and haven't had a voice for decades. 
um, thousands and thousands of women who have wanted to have children who haven't been able to have children. But also there's this... Um, is, it exp- is it the sort of cultural shame? So when I've worked with people who've had miscarriages, part of the silence comes from that sense of fundamental failure that your body has failed. And so mm. there isn't a language... There isn't a language for that. You don't know how to voice that because in some way you don't want that to be the case. And in other ways, that is the most insistent sense that you have. Definitely. Your work has been incredibly helpful and powerful for me to realise that I have had a right to grieve. And I definitely found that the language around fertility treatment was the language of failure. So I was constantly being told by male consultants that I was failing to respond to the drugs my friend was told she had an inhospitable womb someone else I know was told they had an incompetent cervix yeah this is language that it's like a machine like your computer's not working it's like fuck off fuck off fuck off (laughs) and you as a woman your biological destiny is to procreate and you're failing at that like what how how utterly shameful of you to, to, to be unable to do this thing that the other simple people do thing. at the drop of yeah. a hat. Yeah. That's not... I mean, that's how I felt. I'm not saying that that's how they wanted me to feel. No. I just think that medical professionals in that area have a very tough challenge in finding appropriate language. And more recently, I had a fertility thing. <laughs> it's just an ongoing thing. I had uh, an operation and I um, was being treated by a woman and the language she used was so different and compassionate. So without going into too much, I mean, I don't mind going into too much detail, but your listeners might not like it. But I w- was born with a bicornuate uterus, which means there's a septum, which means it's a sort of heart-shaped womb. Um, part of a select group that includes the wonderful Jane Garvey. And, oh. um, and some people believe that by removing the septum, that will decrease the risk of miscarriage. So I was having that operation and the woman who was treating me said, the thing is your womb at the moment is like a beautiful room and it's got these lovely columns in it at the top. And the thing is, is that those columns make the room smaller and when your baby comes, we want the room to be big enough that they feel sort of safe and secure and they can grow in it and expand in it. And it was just such a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I've got a great room (laughs) and I'm just going to do some interior decorating and that's going to make it a better space. And that was so helpful and healing to me. It really, really was. And I should go on to say, because... I realised that when I told you about my first miscarriage, my internal narrative was so self-critical and unkind. And I don't want people to think that I'm still there or that other women should feel that because I've had two miscarriages subsequent to that and I have felt much more able to grieve, to process, to allow people to express their love for me and to acknowledge that I'm going through something that isn't my fault even though it sometimes feels like that and 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 that I think those two most recent miscarriages have happened at a time in my life when I feel so much more myself and so much more accepted because of everything we spoke about earlier and I just wanted to say that yeah 
And isn't, I mean, it's so painful, but also how the experiences have changed you. I mean, you would never want to have the experiences to change you, but through them and through what we've talked about, you're learning that you have to turn to yourself or self-compassion when terrible things happen and you have to let people love you because Mm. when something we love dies, it's the love of others that is the only thing that enables us to survive. But often when we feel in a lot of pain, we shut down and push people out and so it makes the experience more isolating, more lonely and that we get stuck and we get frozen in it. And in some ways whilst you're acknowledging the pain of it, which as you're talking, I can hear is still ongoing. It isn't something you get over or you kind of, that's that cupboard, I can shut that door, whatever, you know, these awful expressions. But that you're learning to live with the pain of it in a way that doesn't damage you more. So the existing pain is there, but the stuff that you're doing isn't making it worse. And that is a is a huge shift of of you, I was going to say developmentally, like you're a child, but of you psychologically. Yeah, I, there's sort of two things that I want to say there. One is that you suggested that I buy, like get something to mark the loss of my miscarriages, like a, a, a sculpture or a piece of art or a piece of jewelry or a notepad or a pet just something and my immediate reaction when people have said that in the past is to feel a bit embarrassed like oh gosh no I don't you know I don't need to mark it because it never was I mean it's so interesting how this connects to what we were saying earlier about not talking about things and sort of protecting ourselves by not talking about them but actually I did get this beautiful stone carving from someone I found on Instagram wow. that I've put in a tiny patch of our small garden and I love having it there because I can look out and see it I can go and sit by it and it's really important for me to honour that experience so it was a really, really helpful thing for me to, for me to do. I can feel myself all goosebumpy and tearful. I mean, that feels such a, such a beautiful thing, but so incredibly tender and mm. and moving. The other thing that I wanted to say is that there's so much cultural conversation around motherhood, and to my mind, there's an enormous amount of fetishization of motherhood. And parenthood generally, but like the way we co-opt women's bodies through pregnancy to endlessly obsess over, I find a very strange part of the times that we're living through. But one of the things that is so often said is you will never have experienced anything like giving birth to your child or you'll you'll never have understood love before you meet your baby or you know, motherhood is like something you'll never have understood before. All of this stuff. And I would like to say to anyone out there who has gone through fertility issues, miscarriage, that kind of loss, no one can ever fully understand that unless they've been through it. 
And that is a precious thing. I wish it weren't so. I wish we didn't have that knowledge. But what that has given us is an enormous amount of wisdom and compassion. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that being a consequence. Yeah, he's given you a a level, a depth of understanding. And, um, you know, where you've hurt most, you can also see most clearly in some way or connect most. Like it's opened you in a way you never wanted for one moment but it's it's expanded you and you've and you've grown from it um and what i understood from you is while people are saying that motherhood is an experience that no one can understand absolutely equally and as legitimately and as powerfully is the experience of not being a mother and that those two sit side by side not that there's not one is greater or lesser than the other, but those are two very important, significant life experiences that we should acknowledge beside each other rather than dissing one and not owning it, not voicing it, hiding it away, and the other kind of fetishizing it and putting it up as the ultimate. Mm. And that they're both incredibly valid and important. Yes. Thank you. And one of them, I mean, I get a lot of messages, beautiful messages and emails. And I sometimes get them from people who say, I have children, but I read your piece and it's made me think so differently about how I'm going to speak to my friend who's gone through a miscarriage about what she's enduring. Or um, I had never thought about this thank you and that's going to change the way that I announce my pregnancy to my friend that is just so beautiful and I've noticed it in my own friendship group just the increase in sort of sensitivity to that and the fact that high profile women now feel able to say that they've had a miscarriage to talk about what it has cost them I mean that's an incredible thing for the rest of us so I'm very grateful for that and I'm very hopeful for change because I tell you what it is hard for everyone living through a a global pandemic and it's extremely hard for parents having to homeschool and it's also hard for people who don't have children who yearn for them to see all of that on social media (laughs) and to be constantly battered over the head with it like it's so hard my life is so hard with all my children and I know again everyone has space I I can't even imagine how difficult that actually is but I just I think it's helpful to remember that there's an enormous amount of privilege in that stress too completely if you had a a message around this if you could make a poster that you put up on huge billboard that you saw all over the cities all over the world what would it read do you mean generally or about this specific issue this specific issue okay um generally it might be a bit much (laughs) i actually find that one easier i don't know what that says about me i'm a massive egomaniac (laughs) well what's that one i suppose that one is only connect which isn't me it's ian forster and i have it tattooed on my wrist because it's oh wow Yes, it's just there. Um, I think I think you're going to be a therapist. I think that's your next job. 
I'm so, definitely that is honestly the greatest compliment you could pay me and you know that you know that it's the greatest compliment because you said it when you came on how to fail and I was like oh it's my true gosh, it's your next step though honestly <laughs> not that you want it because it's terrible money and all the rest of it but, but it, honestly it's a tiny step but not even Thank you. But wait, let me think about the billboard. So that would be the general one. Or something along the lines of like Rumi's poem, The Guest House, which is probably my favourite poem of all time, which is basically about ushering in all your emotions as guests and making them welcome in your home. I love that. Oh, because every emotion can teach you something. But about Only this- connects a bit too BT-ish for me. Oh gosh, no, you ruined it for me for all time and it's on it's tattooed <laughs> on my body. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've got but the like... dial tone, the internet dial tone in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Okay. Um I think it I think it's like if you see a woman without children, ask yourself what pain she might be going through. Yeah. And that's not, I, I appreciate that. That's not from victimhood. That is no. from sensitivity. Yes. And also there are loads of incredible women out there who don't want children, who never wanted children and are really happy with that. And I salute them and I wish I was one of them. I really wish I was one of them. Yeah. But but I think... Save you a lot of It aggro. really would. Um, I just think there are so many assumptions made and I've experienced that myself about women of a certain age not having children and what that might mean. And so I think that's just a helpful thing to ask yourself. Like any time you have an interaction or you want to post something on Instagram complaining about your children or just, I I think that's an important question to ask yourself. I was thinking about the pandemic and, you know, there isn't anybody anywhere that hasn't been impacted by it negatively but I think young people in particular have been impacted by it and the statistics show that it's young women and I think young women are your cohort Um, and kind of remembering your 20 year old self and all the experiences that people haven't had this year you know not having sex not trying stuff out not being able to get jobs not being in offices with people but also all the social media that's got bigger through the pandemic because that's all we've got. Thinking of your 20-year-old self and sort of taking that message that you'd like another 20-year-old to have, do you know what it would be? Yes. I, <laughs> I do. That's so quick. Done. It would be only connect. No, I'm joking. It wouldn't. <laughs> um I don't know why, but I suppose I was just thinking as you were talking there and my heart so goes out to those people, people who can't date and forge relationships. You know, I was, as you know, as we've spoken about, single at 39. If I had then had to live through a global pandemic for a year and And not been able to meet anyone. Oh my gosh, a nightmare, a nightmare. Uh, Yeah. Um, I think it or would be... Or snogging through masks. Awful. You know. <laughs> Seriously, condoms are easy. Masks, not so much. And also, anyone who's ever done online dating will know, you think you have a connection with someone on an app, but when you meet them, it goes out the window, potentially within the first five minutes. Because the you smell. Can't, yes, and you can't get that through a screen, and so you no. might be spending your time on someone who won't be worthy of it. All of that is stressful. Um, but I think what I've come to believe and it's helpful for me to believe it, is that 
the universe is unfolding exactly as is intended, which is another quote from another person. It's from a prose poem by Max Ehrman. Even if you don't have religious faith, and even if you find that quote a bit woo-woo, I believe that the wisest human beings on this planet understand that there is a great unknowable and that unknowable can be a force beyond our comprehension. And I find that reassuring because although we might feel stressed because we're not in control of our own time and we feel like we're not doing things quickly enough, I know that the universe has unfolded in this way to bring me right here, right now. And I'm so unbelievably grateful for that. So those times in my 20s when I felt lost, when I didn't feel I was doing the right thing, when I felt that others were doing better than me, when I was comparing myself, when I was frustrated, I now realise were necessary to teach me the lessons that I needed to know. So if you're in your 20s now and you're feeling like that, you're feeling in a dark place or a stagnant place, I promise you that that will pass. And if you can find the strength to cling on a little bit longer, you will understand why that's happened and why it's been sent to you. Because I also believe that most things in life can teach us something if we choose to let them. We can choose to find meaning even in the meaningless, even in the meaningless trauma of a global pandemic. Maybe what we learn is something as trivial as, well, I don't want to go out every single night when lockdown lifts. And actually having an empty diary has taught me that this is how I like to spend my time. So that's what I would say. And I would also tell my 20-year-old self to worry less, to have fewer long-term monogamous relationships and just like a lot more flings. (laughs) Because I I had to do that post-divorce. I had like my 20s and my teenage years post-divorce because I'd just been in a series of long-term relationships since I was 19. So if you can get that out of the way earlier, then uh, all power to you. And from a serious perspective, and in some way it feels like what you're saying, which I really agree with, is kind of, with grace, kind of recognise what are your limits? Like, what you do not have control of. Yeah. And when you stop trying to wrench control over things that you fundamentally do not have the power, it is not in your gift, let the universe have its power and find your own internal agency, beliefs, love, connection to navigate the landscape you find yourself in rather than trying to make this perfect landscape in the making in the making of it exactly in the making of it you fuck it (laughs) yes that's so much better expressed that's exactly it no 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 that's exactly it it's a sort of committed acceptance you're going to commit to the acceptance of a situation beyond your control and all you can control is who you are in response to it and again that's within your gift you you can choose to find the positive and that is within your power. I mean, the biggest lesson in this for me... And have more fun and and more sex. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. But the biggest thing for me in terms of this journey is, you know, my having a baby. That's not within my control. I mean, I can do all of the things and have all of the investigations and pursue all of the different avenues, but ultimately that's beyond my control. And that's been a really tough one to acknowledge. And I think a lot of women have a similar experience 
where they're like, oh, but I've ticked all of these boxes. I've performed well. I've done well in my exams. I did what I was meant to do. And you're telling me that this thing can't happen. <laughs> and, and so that's been a, a, a lesson of acceptance for me. And it's, it's also a kind of lesson that we're not taught in that you're taught if you do your best, you do your homework, you try hard, you learn, you get through all those um, points of passing your A-levels, getting a double first at Cambridge, getting amazing jobs, getting the Med- Betty Task Award, all of those things, then that feeds your belief system. If I work hard enough, I can make it happen as opposed to the kind of serenity prayer, which we need to have alongside it. That is good, that works, but there's, it's never just that. It's also, accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can and have the wisdom to know the difference. And the two, yeah. we need to incorporate, that we do our best and we kind of don't think that because we can do that, that it, we have power over things that we ultimately don't have the power over. Exactly, exactly. And I think also then when you I don't like the word I don't like the verb achieve but like when you achieve something from that place of acceptance and serenity it feels so much better when you said there double first I I still don't I'm extremely proud of that yeah I should because I didn't think I was capable of it and I still don't I'm a bit like but I that wasn't me and I wasn't capable of that and who is that she's talking about and I think it's because I didn't know myself then and I didn't trust it whereas now I'm I'm much better at trusting the things that happen for good because you're more open because you've taken down the defences of protection, of armour, of being protect, of being perfect, you've opened yourself to your vulnerability and your authenticity. You then have a much broader bandwidth to receive and take in the love you're given, the success you have, the connection to other people and embrace it. When you're kind of armoured and trying so hard, you only have a tiny little window that you can take good stuff in from. Yeah. And it feels like you've opened your window. And I can see you as you're looking at me now, like our window is quite wide open. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could give you a hug. Me too. But maybe yeah. if I'd met you 10 years ago, your window would have been quite, there'd have been quite a lot of blind. You know? I'm also, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of myself in a suit of armour. And the only <laughs> aperture is like that tiny little window by my eye. Yes. That's the only way you can creep in. <laughs> Yeah, like Star Wars or something, whichever yes. program that was. Yeah. Yeah, it always felt like everything was a fluke if it went right. Whereas now, I don't feel that as much, which is nice. Your receive button is much bigger. Yes. That's a lovely, lovely thing. And lovely to see you flourishing in it with all the things that you also want that you haven't got yet. It's sort of both. Yes. And I know that whatever happens I we will be able to deal with and it will teach me something really worth knowing and so that also gives me a sense of calm as as I embark on on a slightly scary journey ahead where I do still very much want to be a mother and believe I will be (laughs) um as I embark on that I know that it will teach me many things that I need to know and I will 
share talk write about all of them <laughs> from a place so of cooled lava <laughs> and uh yeah i will carry on talking about these things forever i think because they're just so important and it's where the truth of life and humanity lies and that's why i just love talking to you and could do it for weeks on end well and me too and i and to hearing you and hearing you say that is so I hate this word in some ways because it's overused, but it is inspirational. Like, you know it's going to be difficult and you know that you'll learn and you'll know that you'll survive. And we all learn from that. And that's a lovely, although I don't want to end, um, that is a lovely spot to end this really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Day. Thank you, Julia, for everything that you are and everything that you do. And this has been such an honor and just like the best free therapy session ever (laughs) whoa that was amazing i could have spoken to her all day and here are some of my thoughts that i had immediately after our conversation i think one of the interesting things from elizabeth was that there was this direct line of seeking truth from when she was a very young age. And she looked to kind of meet that truth in the wrong places to begin with. So it was about performance, about getting a double first, about winning prizes as a journalist. And all of those things were fantastic, but actually, Paradoxically, what we understood together was that it was the truth of being fallible, being imperfect, and being in relationship to herself and allowing herself to be all who she was with her skills and her strengths and her brilliance, as well as her frailties and her complexities and her difficulties and and what she terms failures. I would never term them as failures, but... And that once she could do that, that released her to really find her voice and really find her truth. And what I'm aware of in the research around identity is that there's two conflicting aspects to identity. So there's a core piece of identity is that how I see myself, I need to belong and to be loved in whatever identity that is. But there's also another bit of identity at the same time, which is I need to stand out and be seen and given attention. And sometimes those two can be in conflict with each other. And it seemed to me with Elizabeth, once she aligned her need to stand out and be seen and her sense of who she was in herself, she could then hold them together and be much more integrated and at peace with them. I think a way that that it's possible to begin to understand myself. I get a mood board and find images, pieces of colour, anything that represents the different versions of yourself. So we have multiple identities. We have our child identity, our partner identity, our friend identity, our wicked identity, our professional identity, our faith identity we have multiple identities lots and lots of them but find a way of of demonstrating them on a mood board 
and see what they look like together and move them around and add to them. So have them in your kitchen or in your sitting room where you kind of get representative things like that's me, you know. So if say there's you that is a performer and you see a fantastic picture of someone really performing amazingly, that's that identity of you. You could put your picture on the top of it, you know, or there's you that really wants to be kind of dark and bad and wicked, you know, find something that represents that so that it's allowing all of you and finding an external representation of it and then seeing it as a huge piece of us, you know, that it's a huge puzzle and that the pieces of the puzzle, although jagged and different shapes and different colours, need to kind of sit side by side. Elizabeth's latest book, Philosophy, is out right now. Read it and then reread it. Honestly, it is just brilliant. I have lots more wonderful guests coming up, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast today for free wherever you get your podcasts and the latest episodes will pop into your feed once they are released. I know that the discussion around miscarriage may have brought up your own personal experiences or worries, so if you need further support and information, I encourage you to seek support and go to the specialist organisation miscarriageassociation.org.uk Thanks again to my wonderful guest Elizabeth Day, to my producer Sophie King at Move Sounds and to you for listening. Until next time, bye bye.